The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. George L. King, MD, Research Director and Chief Science Officer at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center, the world's largest diabetes research center, clinic, and provider of education in the management of diabetes. He is also a professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. His new book is The Diabetes Reset, Avoid It, Control It, and Even Reverse It. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. King. Uh, Thank you for having me. Great to have you. And as we've been talking a little bit earlier, I know that you are uh, kind of drowning in snow in Boston, but uh, um, welcome to the show anyway, and good to have you here. Um, Diabetes is a national epidemic. Uh, I think most of us are aware of that. I don't know if we all know about the statistics, but more than 29 million Americans, which is 9.3% of the population, have the condition. And another 86 million are at risk of developing it, according to the American Diabetes Association. In 2012 alone, 1.7 million new cases were diagnosed, and currently diabetes is the seventh leading cause of death in the United States. So uh, I guess your book obviously is timely. It's written for us. It's written for lay people, easy to understand, and um, talks to us specifically about what we can do to uh, avoid diabetes, even if we are pre-diabetic, control it, and even reverse it. So let's talk about it. How do we do that? Well, I think the reason I uh, wrote this book is that, uh, as you have stated, that diabetes is a, a real epidemic, not just in this country, as you cite the statistics, but uh, also around the world, uh, especially in Asia and Europe. So uh, there's a lot of press about uh, uh, the hugeness of the problem. Uh, but uh, uh, many people do not realize there are actually many things you can do to uh, either prevent the coming of the diabetes if you're a high-risk group, or if you already have diabetes, then um, you can uh, uh, do things to control it. Uh, so uh, the now diabetes is actually caused by many type of uh, uh, reasons. Uh, in general, there are type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Uh, my book is uh, coming up with strategies mainly to take care of type 2 diabetes. Now, type 2 diabetes are uh, caused by people, mainly adults, and they're associated with uh, uh, diet and uh, being overweight and sedentary activities, not just purely overweight. Uh, And type 1 is more juvenile onset uh, diabetes where 
their body actually destroys the type of cells that make the insulin, that's the hormone that's important to control your blood glucose. But the uh, strategy that we have outlined, like diet or weight and exercise and sleeping and so forth, could also be helpful for both uh, uh, and uh, uh, to control uh, your your uh, uh, diabetes uh, Dr. as well. Dr. you're talking about uh, 95%, as I understand the statistics, 95% of diabetes patients have type 2 diabetes, which seems to be, as you're describing it, the kind that we can avoid, prevent, or control, or I guess completely cure ourselves of if we, if, if we adhere to some of these lifestyle changes that you recommend in the book or the eight strategies that you recommend in the book. Yes, I think the um, the word cure is always uh, uh, tough to tackle, but I think certainly if you follow uh, many of the strategies that's been shown by many studies, uh, you could prevent the development of the diabetes uh, on, on type 2 diabetes. And uh, in addition, if you already have type 2 diabetes, <clears throat> it could uh, help you control, and control it and also in... Uh, um, I think significant group of people, you could actually, you know, stop taking the medicine, and and you're not really curing it, uh, but uh, you could go for many years uh, without having to uh, take the medications, but you know, following a, a change in in diet and and activity. So that is definitely possible. Well, I always think about type two diabetes as something that we bring on ourselves. I mean, if you go back a generation or two generations, what were the statistics in terms of diabetes? It seems to me, and we're going to obviously get into these lifestyle issues, the way we eat, overeat, uh, exercise that we don't do, um, all of the you know stress levels, et cetera, are all reasons why there are more people suffering from diabetes today than, say, even, what, 25, 30 years ago. Right. So you, you, I... So you're partially right. I agree <laughs> okay, well, that, where uh, am I wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think it's uh, uh, it's definitely a lot more now. So, uh, for example, in the U.S., diabetes only you know two or three percent of population in 1970s and and even 80s, and now is eight uh, percent to nine percent. So obviously, it's dramatically increased, uh, and but even more remarkable uh, in Asia, for example, China in the even late 80s is only 1% of the population, now is over 10%. So clearly it's something environmental. Uh, I'm not sure uh, I would say that you bring it on to yourself because our environment has changed dramatically. That's actually not in our control, right? I mean, we can't control but the airs are, uh, we're breathing in. We can't really control our stress levels because the environment's changed so much. Uh, and certainly the food and so forth, there's some ability to control that, but the type of food may not be available. So I think many of the factors that uh, um, that's environment that uh, would be difficult for us to control. But if we know things that we can control and change, then I think uh, we can uh, either prevent it or uh, uh, or control the diabetes disease. Right. To so a Dr. Great, King, you're uh, saying what extent. we can control, we should be controlling, which is what you talk about in the book. The other stuff, the air, the water, the stress, well, we may have more stress, I guess, but we can control how we react to the stress, 
So uh, we do have control over that, I guess, to some extent. So, but we need to take control of what we can, right? Um, and right, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, so there are many things we can do to, to um, you know, enact some sort of control. And and, and uh, if you want our lifestyle change, you have to to change them in an enjoyable way that we want to do it. It's not just uh, because uh, you know uh, we have to do them. Then it won't last too long. But what about obesity? I mean, I look around me, and I know I, I mean, I talk about this on the show all the time with different professionals. Uh, and, you know, it's, you see all, I don't know what, exactly what the percent, 50% of us are overweight, the other, what, 20% are obese. And I assume there's a direct correlation between obesity and diabetes. And it seems to me we would have some control over our eating habits. So can you just make the connection between those two? Because we're, as a society, we're very fat. Well, I think you're right. The uh, U.S. Uh, data is what you describe. About 25, 30% of people are obese. Uh, over 50% are overweight. And they do have a, a very good correlation with increased rate of, of diabetes. Uh, but also, you have to look on the flip side, which would be... Uh, what percent of people who have diabetes uh, who, who don't have uh, uh, obesity, so type 2 diabetes, that is. So, for example, about 20% of people in the United States um, who actually are not obese uh, or overweight, and they actually have diabetes. So they are, for some reason, they are at higher risk of developing diabetes. Or if you go to Asia, I would say 80% of people are not overweight yet they have a lot of diabetes. So, so I think uh, we have to get uh, you know, beyond the question, well, it's your fault, you know, you're overweight, therefore you have diabetes. But you know, if we only have 8% of the people who have, 89% of people have diabetes, uh, yet 50% of people are overweight, then most people who are overweight actually don't have uh, uh, diabetes, right? So I think there are definitely a lot of things we can do to uh, 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 to prevent diabetes again, without getting into a huge argument about you know uh, obesity itself or blaming people for it. Also, what right. about the? I mean, I would assume the aging population may have something to do it do with it. I mean, the older we get, and our population, we live longer, men and women, um, so that we have more of uh, the. Uh, you know, what potential for developing diabetes as we age? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So um, that uh, aging uh, uh, population, aging is one of the major risk factors for uh, diabetes. And, uh, um, you know, at this present time, we don't have any treatment for anti-aging. So uh, uh, it's, it's another factor we, it's difficult to control. Uh, but you can actually... Take uh, uh, you know steps that would uh, even improve or decrease your risk for diabetes by exercise and and uh, eating correctly. That can actually reverse some of the uh, insulin resistance that come with aging. So, well, can we go through specifically some of the strategies that you have in the book? Because um, the ones that are under our control, the things that we can do to prevent diabetes. Um, Let's start with the first one. You talk about cutting your fat intake in half and doubling your fiber. Fiber. So how do we do that? Well, uh, the reason we came onto this is we we looked at the uh, nutrition diet in Asia I and mean, what what have changed 
from 30 years ago to uh, to now that caused diabetes to go up from 1% to 10%, one of the major changes is the diet. So uh, the traditional or rural Asian diet have about 15% fat and double our fiber intake. Uh, 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 we usually eat 15 grams of uh Fiber now, but in a, a traditional Asian diet, is about 30 grams per day. So we said, okay, well, if we could reverse, you know, go back to uh, uh, those macronutrients, uh, and by using present-day food uh, that you could buy from the grocery store, uh, and then but but uh, uh, you know, lower the fat and increase the fiber. How, how could that work? And we actually did a study and showed that uh, uh, it was very helpful for people who are at risk for diabetes to lower their risk uh, when they go to that. And, you know, it's a simple thing, essentially, is the fat has a lot more calories, let's say, than sugar. So if you eat or, or complex fiber, and then if you eat the uh, fat, you don't feel full because it's not a whole lot. But if you eat a lot of fiber food, you feel full. And it's a lot less calorie, right? Right. So, so that's, that's how it goes. Well, you know, it's interesting. I just got back from Southeast Asia. We were in Cambodia and <clears throat> Vietnam and Myanmar. <clears throat> and I'm thin, but even just eating the diet there, I just lost a couple pounds, two or three pounds. I felt better. It, and also part of it was the availability. Of, you know, we ate a lot of vegetables and a lot of fruit and a lot of rice and noodles, and that was so much healthier, or I felt better. And as I say, I'm not overweight. But you come back here, and the temptation is so great to eat all of, you know, you're talking about reversing the fiber and the fat. It's really hard here because the food that's available in restaurants or even in grocery stores is, in terms of the fat, is so there that um, culturally I think it's more difficult than it is well, than it was, I'll say for myself, like even when on vacation in Southeast Asia. Well, you're absolutely right. So, so you know, uh, it's not just Asian food. Mediterranean diet is actually 60% carbohydrate. And so <clears throat> a lot of vegetables. So if you can, you know, you have to cook it right. So, for example, broccoli. You know, everybody, for some reason, a lot of people don't like broccoli. I and, love broccoli. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so but if you cook it correctly, you know, they're crispy, uh, uh, you know, sautéed and, and quick frying pan uh, and with some garlic, it tastes, it tastes wonderful. So our children had a sense for, you know, 20, 30 years, and, and they love broccoli. So I think you just have to cook it right, and all these things are really enjoyable. Well, we have to sit down and cook. I mean, I guess we have to give ourselves, you know, you talk about lifestyle changes. That involves, you know, that involves also spending a little bit of time, not a lot more time, but in the kitchen and preparation sure. and, yeah, not just racing for the easiest thing to eat. So, it, okay, so that's the first one you have on your list of this eight strategies, but then you also right. talk on reducing your body weight by 5 to 7%. So you say if your BMI right, is above, I, yeah. Let's talk about that, BMI. Yes. <laughs> so the, uh, the point here is that we see advertisement all the time. You'll lose 30 pounds, 50 pounds. But it's remarkable. Many studies show that all you have to lose is about 5% of your body weight. So if you're 200 pounds, you have to lose uh, you know, 10 pounds, 15 pounds 
then uh, your body can really remarkably uh, uh, become a normal in, in, in the sense of how you process your uh, food and your your uh, uh, proteins, uh, fat, and, and carbohydrates. So, so uh, uh, it's it's not so difficult to think, okay, you know, 10 pounds, 5, 10 pounds, I could actually handle, right? Whereas if you want to say, I got to do 40 pounds, then it's, it's uh, so a lot of people don't, don't realize that. Yeah. So baby steps, yeah, you're not going to lose 40 pounds, and, and people sometimes who do, they gain it right back again. But so, you right. know, yeah, so moderate weight loss will help. So, well, yes. well, what about those who say, well, BMI really doesn't make any difference because, you know, muscle weighs more than fat and, like, it, it, you know, measuring your BMI is really not important. You just measure your weight, or is that true? You should be doing both. Well, I think it does help. It doesn't. It's not absolute, right? So, if you're a bodybuilder, sure, it's not going to be uh, uh, that helpful. Uh, but most of us are not in that category. So no, <laughs> for seventy, eighty percent of the, yeah. of the population, it, it is helpful. Uh, uh, but for but the so so again for majority of people. It is helpful. Okay. So, important, BMI and body weight. Uh, one of the other strategies in the book, increase your muscle glucose-absorbing ability. Now, you have to explain this one, through aerobic right. exercise and strength training. Okay. For us lay people, what right. does that mean? Well, uh, insulin is the hormone that's important to lower your glucose in the body. And uh, when you are not, you don't exercise, you don't use your muscle, uh, the muscle become resistant to insulin for a reason, multiple reasons. Uh, but when you exercise, even of 30 to 40 minutes a day, uh, the the muscle suddenly become sensitive to the insulin, which then uh, uh, absorbs, pick up glucose from your blood and lowering your glucose. So, but the, the nice thing a lot of people don't realize is, uh, maybe I shouldn't tell her, but <laughs> all you have to do is exercise uh, uh, three, you know, three or four times a week because the effect of exercise, the beneficial effect of exercise actually lasts 48 hours. Uh, and uh, uh, so, but the muscle has to really contract. Uh, so uh, if you do a lot of non-contracting exercise, they may not to be may not be that helpful. Well, Dr. King, I look at all these people, uh, especially after the holidays now in January or now it's February, but exercising, going to the gym one or two hours. And one of the things I, and I didn't see it in your book, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what about sexual activity? That's good for people. I mean, and I, you know, I mean, that's exercise. That's, uh, that's exercise that, you know, you feel good about yourself and your body and your partner. And I never see that mentioned when, uh, not never, but oftentimes when we're talking about exercise. What about a good relationship with your partner and having good sex two or three times a week? Isn't that good exercise? Well, yes, that, that could, uh, but uh, it uh, uh, it requires uh, at least thirty to forty minutes, so you have to sustain it. And certainly, I think for a lot of people, it could be decreasing stress uh, as one of the components. So, so all that uh, um, uh, could be uh, done. Well, I have to, that's a good point. We didn't really look into that part. Yeah, well, I always, as a social worker, because, you know, and, and I, I don't see clients as much as I used to, but, I mean, I, I always I think about that because we're talking about changing our lifestyle and slowing down and eating less and feeling good about ourselves and looking good, then that also, like you said, I mean, you, you exercise, you know, you have good 
uh, relationship with the, with uh, with your partner and you have good sex and it, it kind of generalizes into other good habits I guess and lowers the stress level and and all those kinds of things I think there have been some studies at the University of Chicago that have kind of addressed this so um, I think um, yeah I was just curious as your take on that because I didn't see that yeah. in the book. <laughs> No, no, good point. We have to add it in the new edition. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm going to be looking for it in the next edition. Um, okay. All right. Uh, what about this? Uh, I'm skipping one here, I guess. Well, no, I won't skip sure. it. Activate your brown fat. What is brown fat? Uh, why? And you talk about why not all fat is bad for you. Uh, so what's brown fat? Yeah, so brown fat is actually one of the big discovery in the area of obesity and diabetes in the last five or six years. Brown fat uh, is important for us because brown fat burns up calories uh, to generate heat for us, such in the cold weather. But babies have a lot of brown fat because uh, they need the heat, and if you touch them, they are very warm. But the, uh, we lose them as adults, and they get activated by cold weather and uh, uh, also by some form of exercise. Uh, and what happened is the brown fat, again, burns up calories. You, you just, you know, every day it just sits there and brown fat quints get activated. You don't have to do anything. It just burns up calories. So it's wonderful. So a lot of people are trying to find a way to activate it, uh, drug company included, so, so it could decrease uh, obesity. Um, but as I mentioned, for example, exercise. So if you exercise, a lot of people turn up the temperature and will just sweat. But that actually shuts down the brown fat. So you want to exercise at 62, 64 degrees. So not only do you lose the calorie from the exercise itself, but also activate your brown fat. In turn, that will burn up more calories. So, so you could do a couple of things and uh, even save energy, right? Okay, so we save energy with 60, 62, what did you say, 65 degrees? 62 to 64 degrees, yeah. We only have about four minutes left, and so we're not going to go through all eight of the uh, strategies. Okay. And obviously, we want people to go out and buy the book, and then they can go mm-hmm. through them themselves, even in more detail than we've talked about. But even go through the rest of them, we haven't had a chance to talk about. Uh, let's just maybe skip over to um, reducing stress, because you know, as a social worker, I'm really interested in this one: reducing stress and managing your mental health. How do we do that? I mean, there are so many books about reducing stress and managing your mental health, and yet we all seem to be crazier than ever. So what, how do we, <laughs> what are well, we doing? You're probably a better expert than I am. <laughs> but uh, the, the, uh, 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 it's very clear that if you increase stress, your body would not be able to handle the insulin that we're talking about, make the insulin don't work as well, and also increase inflammation. Uh, for example, the cortisol levels and, and so forth goes up. So. Um, uh, there are multiple things you can do, actually, to, to uh, for example, you could uh, combine the uh, exercise uh, issue. So walking, uh, go for a long walk, 30 to 40 minutes a day, and uh, uh, that will calm, I think, a lot of people down, uh, and uh, it, that will increase your uh, exercise, uh, your activity level uh, as well. And so that, that could be certainly... Uh, one thing. Uh, another would be uh, uh, do activity that would take your mind off um, off what your uh, uh, main acti- uh, main job or occupation, because sometimes that causes stress. So some people uh, sounds terrible, but they you know watch 
television. Yeah, I <laughs> do that. I love television. Hour, hour. <laughs> and don't if you don't snack, then then uh, I actually listen to radio. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, it, it calms me down. Uh, 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 and so whatever you you like to do, uh, I always use example my father who developed diabetes only seventy two, and uh, uh, he was on three medications for about a year, and then he instituted the you know the Asian diet because he's you know we're Asian, yeah. and uh, uh, he um, also take a daily walk. He was retired about uh, forty five minutes to an hour a day. And uh, uh, he's very thin, so he never really lost any weight. But he says that just makes him feel better, you know, calmer. I think those, and after a year, he stopped all medications and was off medication for at least uh, 12 years. Uh, 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 and so I think those are the things uh, you could uh, uh, do. Well, we're going to end it on that success story, your father's success story. Okay. That's a, yeah, that's a good story. It was really a pleasure talking to you today, and um, obviously I recommend the book, Dr. George L. King, MD, uh, Chief Science Officer of the Jocelyn Diabetes Center, Harvard Medical School, and his new book is The Diabetes Reset. Avoid it, control it, and even reverse it. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you. I'm looking forward to the second book. Okay. Yes. Thank you, Dr. King. We're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you experiencing a relationship or a relation slip? Without the carefully measured balance of spirit and ego, it might not be what you want it to be. On Relation Slips with Dr. Bobby Summer and Lori Lynn Mann, we'll explore relationships from two unique ends of the spectrum. In addition, we'll have amazing guests, both experts and celebrities, and we'll hear from you too. Relation Slips can be heard live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. 
You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Tune in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's practical, positive solutions for a happy, empowered, and successful life. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Thelma Reese. She's co-authored a book with Barbara... And the title of the book is The New Senior Woman, Reinventing the Years Beyond Midlife. Uh, Thelma is, has a doctorate in education. She's a retired professor of English and of education. She created the Advisory Council for Hooked on Phonics and was its spokesperson in the 90s. Uh, she and her co-author have also created and maintained the website elderchicks.com. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Thelma. Thanks so much. Great to have you here. here. So you are an, I'm making the assumption you're an elder chick, a woman. I'm 81. 81. 
Well, you don't and sound Bob, like you're 81. I'm not sure what 81 sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> but congratulations. So you, well, you're the person to write the book. You've had, obviously, you've had a lot of experience. And I guess the thing, the book is about, and I, I you know, I uh, actually read the book this week. Uh, women keep, and men are living longer, obviously, um, and living well into what we used to call retirement. But for women, it's particularly a different stage of life that we really haven't necessarily been prepared for because our mother's lives when they retired at say 60 plus or 65 plus, whether it was, uh, was kind of like they, you know, either retiring to Florida or, uh, sitting around playing cards or, but not the kind of retirement that, that we have today. That's very different for us today. So, I mean, that's what the book is about. And you have many stories of women and different choices that they've made in their, I say retirement. I don't even like the word retirement, but, um, so let's talk about reinventing the years beyond midlife. How do we do it? It is different than our mother's midlife or, or beyond. It's, it's so different. Uh, the world is different. And, of course, if you looked at a, uh, at a graph of the population from just 15 years ago, it would come to a point at the top where the fewest people are. At a certain age, well, today, that graph looks so different, it's got a very flat top. It's like a cutoff up below the peak. And that's because there are so many people living longer that it's a very much more visible segment of the whole population. So we didn't even used to see these people as much as we do now. We even see ourselves reflected in some advertisements today. We didn't used to. So the numbers are greater. I mean, there's, as you you know, the, the the pyramid is kind of more upside down. I guess it's changed. Right. I mean, I have a my mother's ninety two years old, and oh uh, great, yeah. How is she? She's great. She's great. Uh-huh. She you know she lives alone. She does many of the same things she always did um, and does. And, uh, yeah, I mean, so she's an example of what you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. She certainly is. Yeah. And so was my mother, actually, although uh, I often think, you know, it was still different for her, although she did work from the time she was 16 years old. Um, she never wore slacks in her life. My mother never wore long pants. She never would get on a plane without being dressed nicely. Uh, these are outward signs, but it, they certainly sort of signaled a different role she saw for herself, a different way of behaving in some ways. But she re- always remained connected with younger people, which was wonderful. Yep. And uh, But what we're finding is that it's not only our contemporaries like your mom and people like us in our 80s, uh, or the ones who are coming right behind us, our audience is turning out to be people in their 50s also. And even younger, we're kind of shocked sometimes by this, but we're beginning to figure out why it is. The people we talk to in the book, and these were conversations, we had conversations with over 200 women all over the country from all walks of life. And uh, most of them, really because they turned out to be such role models among us, all very different, but all having something 
interesting that we can learn from. But uh, we really see now that people are looking ahead not only to their own let's call them retirement years, if they're going to retire from one career, they're probably going to go on to another, even if they're in their 60s, but also younger people living with these older people and interested in them. And this is a a real surprise to us, too, that younger people want to read about older women and find out what it's been like for them, what they can learn from them, and what they have to think about think about in planning their own futures. Yeah. So I think what you're talking about, and I think it's so important, is this whole concept of intergenerational, and that you mentioned that in the book. Absolutely. Yeah. So that you can, and you can have four generations of women, uh, not necessarily living in the same house. I'm not so sure that's good, but in <laughs> contact. Not so sure with, either. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, and that's really important to share all that, you know, a wealth of wisdom and information from all three or four generations. But and what would you say, because yeah. you mentioned that you interviewed and you did in the book that, you know, over 200 women, all different walks of life. What were some of the main, like, salient issues of the women today? Their lives aren't as circumscribed as you described as, as your mother, this for instance. This is true. Yeah, this or my grandmother. So you know, I identified with that. You said your grandmother, your mother never, uh, always, <laughs> never wore slacks. My grandmother never wore slacks. She always dressed for dinner. She never wore a bathing suit, even at a swimming pool. You know, this, yeah, same kind of thing. And, right. Uh, yeah, which has completely changed. So uh, what were some of the issues you would say with these two, among these 200 women that yeah. were you know, that stood out, maybe two or three of the the ones that they were struggling with the most as they became, let's say, 60s. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, the the thing is that when we started out to do this book, um, we, we were talking to people at senior centers or people who had been recommended by other people. We looked around and we saw some people who seemed to be doing well as they age, and that doesn't mean that some of them weren't in wheelchairs or using canes or having physical problems, but in their spirit, in their attitudes, they seem to be handling aging very well. And others who might look terrific but weren't, uh, who were very busy, but it was a kind of frenetic busyness. And as we talked to groups first, uh, these topics emerged that we realized people had in common, like the family relationships. Here are women, some of them in their 70s and 80s, who are still seeing rivalry among their children. They're trying to maintain a sense of uh, cohesion in the family. People who were... uh, trying to find ways that they felt were meaningful for them to spend their days. Uh, people who were afraid of forgetting things, what we laughingly call senior moments, were they something to be scared of? Uh, of course, one of the big ones is downsizing, which we came to recognize for many of us is really a metaphor for how we're changing our lives and learning new things. I mean, we're we're in a world that is so different from the one we grew up in, just the technical changes, the technological changes, and learning them and dealing with them. And, of course, everyone, no one 
gets to this age without having experienced a lot of loss. Yeah, that was going to be my, you know, that's my next thought as I'm listening to you. The loss, whether it's loss, friends, family dying, um, and other kinds of losses too. It can be, uh, you know, losses of, uh, you know, monetary losses, whatever. And everybody experiences loss. And I think it gets somehow as you, one gets older, it, it's more difficult. Uh, because do you think maybe Selma's more difficult because then you, it's harder to replace that loss? I mean, it, when, when you're I young. I think that's a piece of it. But I, I think I'm thinking of the two oldest people in the book, both of whom, one did just recently die uh, at 101, and the other one is, is 100 now. Uh, and these two women were wonderful. They didn't know each other. They had totally dissimilar backgrounds. And they both said the same thing to me. <laughs> and I said, what about loss? How have you dealt with loss in your life? And uh, they both said the same thing and said it very philosophically, I thought. They said, oh, well, that's part of living, which at first kind of shocked me. It sounded so sort of cavalier, oh, well, you know, sort of dismissive. And then I realized... I think they had lived long enough and learned to accept life well enough to know that you can't escape it, so you simply have to learn to deal with it in whatever way possible and to go on in a positive way eventually. So the loss is going, you know, and it reminds me of a friend of mine, an oncologist who once said to me, uh, life is just a series of losses, and it's how you adapt to those losses, yes. whether, you start, whether you emerge from your mother's womb and you've lost the comfort of that to right. starting with, you know, nursing your baby and, and, and then yeah. weaning them and then going to kindergarten where you've lost that kind of womb light situation at home. So it is a series of losses, I guess. Is, is, it is. Yeah. The only thing I would quarrel with is saying just. It's not just, just no. <laughs> there are because of course we know there's there is so much more and the people what one I was speaking recently in um, New York and uh, one of the people in the audience came up to me afterwards and thanked me for having told one of the stories in the book uh, it and it's of a woman whose only son had died at thirty of an aneurysm, um, and she was deeply religious, but nevertheless absolutely shattered And for several years. And I said, well, how did you? And she has led a marvelously productive life of wonderful comp- contributions in many ways. And um, I said, how did you come out of it? She said, you know, I eventually came to realize it had been an honor to be his mother. And at that time, she started bringing out all of these wonderful things he had written and drawn, and he had a great sense of humor. Uh, and and they made her happy again. But I thought that was uh, amazing. 
Well, I think it is because in my experience, either professionally or personally with, you know, parents or mothers who have lost their children, um, it's not always, they're not always able to overcome it. I mean, it, it That's is just, right. yeah. And, 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 maybe, and so she is a musician. I think, you know, the fact that she had always been uh, a musician and interested in other young people and their music and helping them uh, helped her reach that. Uh, feeling that understanding, and um, it's different for everyone. But like, you're now you're 81 years old, so you are a role model for everyone in in this book or people who are reading it. Because I mean, uh, you know, and I introduced you. You're a retired professor of English and of education, and now you, as I understand it, you're also you have a, you're on serious radio weekly. You are on a show. Yes, we're we're on from. Uh, Seven thirty to eight on Wednesday nights on Sirius Radio with Armstrong Williams Live. So you're a radio personality. You have, and I also want to mention the. You have a blog, elderchicks.com. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can tell so, you something I mean, funny about that. When when Bobby and I, my partner and I, started talking about this, uh, and and. Really thinking, well, you know, we might be retired from teaching, and we certainly didn't want to write anything academic ever again, frankly. Uh, but we really were curious and interested uh, in, in how people are doing this, and we weren't interested in how uh, famous celebrities were doing it. Because <laughs> first of all, we don't always know if they wrote their own books. And second of all, it seemed like such a different kind of life than most people's. And so we have, as I say, every ethnic and and, uh, socioeconomic level in this book. But we learn from everybody. And so we started talking to people, and our daughters in their 50s said to us, well, you want to have a blog. And, of course, we said, What's a blog? I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) What's a blog? (laughs) And when we came up with the name Elder Chicks, most people really liked it, but I was chairing a uh, panel for the district attorney's office here in Philadelphia, where I live, at the time, and we had a man on the panel, and we started the blog, and I sent an email around to my fellow panel members, and I asked him if he had looked at it. And he said, oh, is that from you? I said, yes. He said, I thought it might be porn. Oh, (laughs) well, you know, he's right, actually. Elderchicks.com very well could be porn. (laughs) But the blog has been wonderful because, and now we just heard from a woman in Germany who's 62, and wants to connect with people. She's not retired yet, but she wants to start connecting with older people, too. It's been fascinating. So is that the mission of the blog, to get uh, elder chicks around the world to be able to connect? and, and... Well, to anywhere, any, anyone who is interested in just being able to express things to each other or, or what, they, what they're thinking. Uh, we've never had actually anybody write on it that we didn't think was worth listening to, which is uh, not always the case on all social networks. 
Yeah. <laughs> and people seem people seem very anxious to say the first thing that pops into their head instead of uh, maybe considering it first. Well, on elder chicks, is this? Are we just? Are you just getting responses? Because I looked at it briefly. Are you just getting responses from older women, or are you getting responses from their children? Let's say they you're an elder an, chick, but so are your daughters. So you know, for the um, first time, uh, we heard from an 18 year old last month who said she's working in a. Uh, um, facility for seniors, and she just wants to tell people she's learning so much, and she thinks people her age are missing a lot who aren't connecting with older people, and it was delightful to hear from her, and of course, several people wrote back and said, you know, she obviously has had a wonderful upbringing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you think... um... Do you think, Thelma, that now because of the Internet and, you know, Facebook and, and Twitter, and I know this, you know, obviously this, we criticize it a lot or the, pe- people are criticizing social media, but that that actually does give elder chicks and their grandchildren and younger people an, uh, an opportunity to connect with each other and that's a, that they're doing that more and that that's a positive thing? I think it can be, but I think for the most part, frankly, it's pretty superficial. I don't think it's the same as people actually getting together and talking face-to-face. I don't think it's the same as connecting really where you uh, can express in a back-and-forth in real time. Uh, I, you know, I... I do see people who who use it um, who use the social media productively, I think, and interestingly. But first of all, there are still a lot of seniors who are not connected, who are really not using the internet, who are still not comfortable with computers, who allow themselves to be very isolated. Some terribly intelligent people, otherwise, who are still totally inhibited about doing that. How do you think we can overcome that? Because I think that's a big issue, and I'm glad you brought that up. Because using the computer in a good way, and we're just talking briefly about that, they have the opportunity to do that. You can be in a wheelchair. You can be in an assisted living facility. You may not have the opportunity to see or be with your grandchildren in real time. You don't want it to be a substitute for it. But how can you help elders, elder chicks to get over that fear of using their computers or there are even a, an iPhone or, you know, avail yeah. themselves of that opportunity. I, I think it is important. And I think that uh, through senior centers and through it, when people live in a communal setting, uh, it's much easier. I think when people are isolated, it really is terribly important for the younger people who are connected to them to try to make that happen, and that's not that difficult. They can do it with a simpler mechanism than a whole computer. Somebody can have an iPad, and a, and a grandchild or, or a grown child can set them up to use it or a simpler kind of phone than an actual iPhone. 
Well, my mother, for instance, has all the you know, the real. She doesn't have a substitute, but the real stuff. And she has eight grandchildren, and she kind of is doing what you what you say. She can. Mm-hmm. She has her IT team. She calls up any one of her grandchildren. Isn't that great? Gets the information, and when they come to visit her, the first thing she'll say is, "Could you come with me?" And brings her, you know, something right. that needs doing right. on the <laughs> fixing the computer, and it works out very well for her. Well, and it works out for both of them. I mean, I think it's so wonderful for the young person who helps her to know that it's such a valuable thing that he or she is doing, that, you know, they're contributing to each other's lives, and they're doing it with respect because for the young person, I think they're seeing a wonderful uh, example of role modeling. Here is someone who is 92, and she's still learning, and exactly. I can help her do it. And and the older person is saying, I really respect you, kid, <laughs> because <laughs> you can teach me something, and I appreciate it. I I think that's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. So yes, you're absolutely right. It's it's a it's a kind of, it's a mutual thing, and they're both gaining right. from it. Yeah. Uh, well, we only have a minute left, so we have to oh, think no. about. I know this went by fast, but I want to obviously I want to mention the book again, the new senior woman reinventing the years beyond midlife. You can buy it bookstores everywhere, online, Amazon. Right. Yep. And, and the paperback version just came out. So. Oh, okay. And the paperback version came out. Good. Um, and also, elderchicks.com, that's a new blog. Right. Or maybe it's not new for everyone, but if it is, go to elderchicks.com and uh, listen to you weekly on the Armstrong Williams Show on Sirius Radio, Elder Chicks. Thank you so yeah. much. Great talking to you today. Lovely talking to you. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. Uh, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.